0: Lube. Welcome to the first episode of Head on History Season 3. This episode is an exciting one, and I'm glad to be back. Uh, I wanted to say, how are you, my fellow history nerds? I had a nice break. I kept busy with uh, teaching. I gave a keynote, presented a few papers, and managed to get some writing done. All in all, a very productive time away from podcasting, but I am very excited to be back. Hopefully, you all have been enjoying past episodes and keeping up, but we we are back. We're gonna do ten episodes of a regular podcast. There may be some special head-on history episodes planned so keep your eye out for that Um, i wanted to start off this season uh, by giving some shout outs to some awesome people i wanted to shout out and i can't believe i'm going to be reading this name out but uh, i must phil coxlick uh, who gave a five-star review on itunes um, and a really awesome left some really awesome feedback thank you for that you have a hilarious name Um, But thank you for the review. It was fantastic. Um, If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, uh, please be sure to give us a review on the podcast app or iTunes. Actually, give me your thoughts. I would love to hear from you. Also, I'm going to give a quick shout out to my friend Bree, who is a scholar up at UCLA, for helping me with today's transcript and to some of my awesome and supportive students who've been hitting me up during the break. You guys are all fantastic. Uh, For those of you that are just tuning in. My name is Ali. I am the host of this Total Nerd podcast where we cover all things history related. Um, If you want to get in contact with me, you can do so via social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. You can hit me up on Instagram and you'll see all the kind of cool things I've been doing during the break. You can see some of my talks and speeches and papers and other fun stuff that I've been doing. Or check me out on Twitter where I basically harass Chris Christie. (laughs) <laughs> and share and shit post all the time. Um, but enough of that. This season, uh, we are going to talk about what I call other Islams. In fact, that is going to be the kind of title of season three. We're going to be focusing on the margins of the religion and its history. In season one, I gave you guys the chronology. In season two, we had a kind of thematic dive into the intellectual history of Islam. This season, we're going to talk about all the stuff you don't find in your textbooks, Or in your classrooms. Season three will probably be the last season where we focus on Islam specifically. Season four, I mean, it's up in the air. I'm still planning. We have a lot of things. Season four might be a history of the war on terror. That should be kind of interesting. Um, It'll be moved much more to the contemporary moment and attempt to kind of historicize what we all who are listening have been living through for the past roughly almost 20 years now. So maybe a history of the war on terror and then and Season 5 will probably be doing Ancient Persia or Ancient Rome. So, lots of interesting stuff, but for this season, we're going to complete Islam. We're going to do the final kind of uh, discussion on it. Today, what I want to take a closer look at is the coming of Islam to Afghanistan, or the region that we now call uh, Afghanistan, and what was originally called Greater Horsam. It's often considered the kind of eastern frontier of Islam, along with uh, North India much of the kind of narrative and story about Islam is really Islam being spread by the sword. And there's this sort of idea of Arab conquest, Arab invaders rushing into uh, the region that we now call Afghanistan and converting everyone by the sword. Well, this episode is going to kind of try to dispel some of those myths while remaining true to the actual history that, yes, battles did take place and conquests were a reality. There, there shouldn't be any kind of dismissing of that. But that religious conversion was a different process and that the region that eventually became Afghanistan really gives us a cool case study into that process of conversion, which actually takes a long period of time and even kind of complicates the narrative of, of conquest. So in the 7th and 8th century, much of Khorasan was ruled by what was then called the Sasanian empire. But because of its location at the edges of the empire and because of its kind of rugged geography, the region tended to be autonomous with local satraps exerting their own authority. What becomes Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, that region, it was always hard to govern. And so you would have the Sasanian rulers in Ctesiphon, but they wouldn't exert a lot of authority and you would have these local governors and satraps who would give kind of lip service to the Sasanian emperor and king, but who exerted their own power in the region, and that's just because it was at the edges of empire, and there wasn't a consolidated army that you could just send in uh, and ensure and enforce your policies. In 636, the Sasanian king Yazdegerd III actually abandoned his capital in Ctesiphon, having lost most of Iraq to what was the Rashidun Caliphate. If you don't know what the Rashidun Caliphate is, go back to season one, shameless plug, check it out, and you'll know who they are. He actually retreats to an area or to a city called Nahavand. There, he gathers about 150-ish, thousand troops, and he sets them up in these fortified lines and has his general, Firazun, kind of lead his army. Firazun was a very famous Sasanian general, was kind of a local from that region. Uh, very skilled military tact- military tactician. The Muslims, on the other hand, numbered about 30,000 under the general Nu'man. So you had 30,000 Muslims up against 150,000 Sasanian troops. The Muslims were massively, massively outnumbered, but this battle is an interesting snapshot into the broader Muslim conquest and how they actually went down. More often than not, wherever they went, the Muslims had much smaller numbers, but they were up against Armies that were already exhausted from decades of imperial war, and more importantly, they fought back against people that were reviled by the locals. So, the Sasanians had been fighting against the Byzantines for a long time, and so they were really kind of exhausted. The Sasanians also lost the battle against the Muslims already, lost a big portion of Iraq, and so as a result, they were exhausted. The 150 troops that he raised were a large amount and many of them were locals but they had already been engaged in a series of conflicts and they were pretty tired to many of the kind of locals the muslims were actually a welcome change remember this is an area that isn't easily ruled by the sassanians and so they are kind of going you know what these muslim dudes not so bad. Maybe we should change sides. So in the Battle of Nahvand, Numan fought or Numan fought a series of skirmishes against the Sassanian Firuzan. He then did something really tricky. He fought up against these, these fortified lines, but he couldn't break through. So he feigned a retreat. He pretended like he was running away. Numan gave chase. He stretched out his cavalry, thin between two giant mountains and rocky terrains. This allowed the Muslims to regroup and then turn around and smash through the cavalry and then encircle the stretched out Sasanian army. The battle was fierce and it was decisive. Many Sasanian local lords who were already bucking against the Sasanian rule defected to the Rashidun Caliphate Muslim victory sent Yazdegerd fleeing into Afghanistan and then into Central Asia I mean the battle was decisive the the battle of Nahavand is considered to be the last battle of the Sasanian Empire. Uh, Yazdegerd was never able to regroup, never able to really raise that number of troops ever again. And it officially brought the Sasanian Empire down and put the majority of the empire into Muslim hands. But we see a lot of interesting dynamics here. First and foremost, you have an exhausted but larger military being defeated by a much smaller uh, set of troops. The smaller set of troops relying on really dynamic military tactics, not fighting in typical lines, but moving back and forth, retreating and moving forward and smashing through lines. A very dynamic military strategy that was different from how the Sasanians had been fighting in the traditional set your troops up in lines and then march them against uh, your opponent. This is exactly how they fought against the Byzantines for for decades, decades and centuries they had been fighting that way. Very different. And then also the idea that, that you had local rulers kind of join, join the Muslims. This was all kind of a unique kind of experience and part of the reason why the Muslims were able to kind of uh, defeat them. The Muslim forces chased after him um, into kind of Central Asia, but they first established a base in Herat. Herat being the first entryway of Muslims into what would eventually become Afghanistan. After they established their base, they then moved northwards. This march kind of establishes a triangle of cities that would become the intellectual and cultural heart of the Persian Islamic world from Herat to Balkh to Bukhara and then Kabul these cities all represented something. Herat, Balkh, and Bukhara became the kind of cultural heart and intellectual heart of the Muslim world. Kabul became the kind of merchant heart of the Muslim world. This is in the Persianate uh, region, if you will. So on the kind of eastern frontiers of Islam, you had this formation develop from Herat, Balkh, and Bukhara to Kabul. Eventually, we go into Sistan and Helmand as well. In 651, Yazdegerd was actually assassinated by a local in Merv. I actually knew this old dude whose name was Merv, and I've always wondered if he was named after the place Merv, but I kind of doubt that because he was an American dude. I'm pretty sure that if I asked him where Merv would, he had no idea. I, but Merv was a popular name, I think, like back in the day, right? old people, a lot of bunch of people named like Merv. You don't see many Mervs or Gertrudes anymore. But that's an aside. In 643, the general Abdullah ibn Sa'am Amr moves into Sistan and Helmand. Helmand is, a, is a, a, a delta region in Afghanistan, and he brings it under Muslim control through a treaty that he signs with local rulers. Now the local rulers agree to, to recognize the authority of the Muslims uh, so long as they pay a tax, a, a Khazarj tax. This tax is a land tax, an agriculture tax, the proportion of their agriculture culture goes to the Muslim rulers. In fact, this is often seen as a kind of a uniquely Muslim uh, tactic, but it's not. It's actually a Sasanian practice that the Muslims simply continue. The idea being that you've already been paying taxes to the Sasanian king, you're just now going to pay those same exact taxes to the Muslims. And so we see here that yet again, the kind of authority or imperial control extending into southern Afghanistan was not actually a military conquest, but a diplomatic treaty that brought these two uh, regions together. In 650, Abdallah bin Amr sent about a thousand Aswaria, Asawira, and the Banu Tamim into. Uh, northern Khorasan, so more closely towards uh, Baal hamazar sharif and then upwards north into uh, what is Uzbekistan. Now, the Asawira were local Iranian nobles that had joined with the Muslims. This coalition of forces is kind of a common experience for the Muslim conquest. We refer to these expansions uh, from the Arabian Peninsula into the Byzantine world and the Sassanian and Persian world. We refer to them as conquests and while they were certainly an empire that is being run by Muslims what they aren't are religious expansions nor are they a uniquely Arab conquest instead what we have is kind of a coalition of forces of local rulers and Arabs that join together and rise against the kind of established old order in many ways it's more accurately seen as a sort of coalition and revolution of local forces overthrowing their imperial overlords for someone else so while militarily the region that would eventually be called Afghanistan is brought under Muslim rule in the 7th and 8th century, the religious conversion process is actually a lot longer. So let's start looking at that. Uh, the region that Afghanistan is part of, known as Khurasan, religiously it was an enclave of Hindu, Buddhist, and Avestan religions like Zoroastrianism. In fact, the latter, Zoroastrianism, was believed to have started in Balkh, the contemporary city in Afghanistan. and there was. A If you look today in Afghanistan, there is a lot of remnants of Buddhist Buddhist suptas and shrines all over, most famously in Bamyan, that was destroyed by the Taliban in uh, 1999. But there is a lot of Buddhist remnants, and a lot of those shrines were preserved up until the contemporary moment. Uh, Indeed, up until around the 9th century, a part of Afghanistan was ruled by Hindu monarchs known as the Zabuls, uh, and what is known as Zabulistan. On. The actual conversion to Islam takes place under the Safarids in the 9th century. Uh, a man named Yaqub bin Laith Assafar is a local ruler. He was actually, I think, a, a minor or miller, kind of a minor character that ends up becoming a warlord that establishes a kind of local dynasty known as the Safarids. He conquers Balkh and Herat and these kind of regions that had been originally conquered by the Muslims but had remained mostly autonomous. Remember, this is kind of the eastern parts of the empire, really hard to control. So the Safarids under uh, Asafar brings them all together into kind of one cohesive political force. And the Khalif recognizes him as kind of his agent. So this guy starts his own process, his own mission of kind of conquering. He's a warlord. He, He kind of brings them all under a single military control. And then the Khalif, who's over in Baghdad, goes, yeah, I accept you as my Representative over there. So he gives kind of the religious stamp of approval to Asafar's mission. But it isn't until the Samanids in the 10th century that mass conversion happens. The Asafar himself originally converts the populaces in the cities, and he does this through a cultural process, not a military process. Quite famously, when he conquers Herat, the poets write these kind of praise poems for him in Arabic, and he says, no, no, don't write it in Arabic, write it in Persian. In other words, kind of trying to fuse Islam and kind of Persianate culture together, or what he starts to construct as Persian culture. This project is picked up by the Samanids, another local dynasty that conquered the Safarid Territory in the 10th century. Under the, Safa, uh, the the Samanids, this is a dynasty that I, in particular, am very interested in. This time period, in particular, is something I'm very fascinated in. And in fact, a lot of my dissertation focuses on this kind of conversion process and the kind of emergence. Of local Muslim and Persianate identities. There is a vizier named Muhammad Balami al-Balami. And what he does is he undergoes a massive or he starts a massive translation project. The first thing that he does is he translates Muhammad al-Tabari's Tariq al-Rasul al-Mulkh, that is the history of uh, kings and the, uh, the history of the Prophet and Kings. Uh, and what he does in this translation process, by translating it into Persian, what he says is this history is integrative. This history is not just a history of arabs this is not just a history of muslims but it is a history of us of these people that speak this language known as Parsi or farsi um, by by translating it into persian he makes that history uh, part of the identity of the people of that region the people of balkh the people of herat the people of bukhara and he uses kind of poets very famous poets to go out and preach and kind of sing Sing songs and and recite poems extolling the virtue of the Muslim reign as kind of the inheritors of both the Caliphate and the Sasanians before them. So what he does is he fuses the kind of Sasanian history, the history that would have been local and intelligible to the people who lived in the region with the Muslim histories. In other words taking the the Muslims who were technically coming from uh, uh, Arabia and making them Are intelligible to the people there, going, they're not conquerors from another place, they are inheritors and custodians of this guardian, uh, of this history. In other words, they are the end result of a long historical process. It's a very clever intellectual project. Alongside this kind of historical narrative that emerges, this shared history, we are one people, descendant from the Sasanians and the Muslims, he also translates the Quran into Persian, now this is a huge, huge project. What he does is he creates what is known as classical Persian, Parisi. He uses Arabic script because the Persian didn't have a script of its own. It used a variety of different scripts. We have evidence of it using Syriac. We have some evidence of it using Pahlavi. We have the, the uh, Akkadian script. We have a, 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 even, even some old cuneiform when, the, when we look at the Avestan kind of language. But by using Arabic script with Persian words, what this did is it preserved a unique sense of identity. It's why Persian remains as a language, whereas in Egypt, the local language was replaced by Arabic. Everywhere we went, Arabic became the kind of lingua franca, But in this region, this Khursan that would eventually become um, the uh, heartland of, of the Muslim world, in which it would eventually become Afghanistan, Persian identity and Persian language was preserved. That's a unique kind of historical experience. And it's because of this man named Balami who translated the Quran into... Persian. Now originally this project really impacted the intellectuals, the, the intelligentsia. So you see these kind of cities under the Samanids, the Bal and Bukhara, they become they can they become Muslim centers. They in fact become the center of the Muslim world. Afghanistan, where it became, becomes the intellectual and kind of cultural hip place. Because Baghdad was suffering from all these serious internal divisions: civil war, strife. So the Khalif becomes a sort of figurehead while these local rulers, the uh, the Samanid emirs, exert actual power and while originally it starts off as a kind of renaissance amongst the intelligentsia it starts off as a project that, int- that creates a shared Persian-Islamic identity that fuses Muslimness and Persianness together that fuses cultural identity and religious identity together it then spreads outwards from there through a process of conversion now this is why the majority of this region becomes Sunni Muslim when we think of the Persian world today we think of Shia Islam specifically vis-a-vis Iran. But the reality is that most of this region is actually Sunni at this time period because of the Samanids. And conversion to Shiaism begins actually under the Safavid dynasty in the 16th century. But the Samanids, by, by translating the Quran into Persian, makes the religion accessible to the ordinary person, to the, to the kind of local miller, to the local shopskeeper. They're able to to now have access to Islam without the intermediary of scholars. At the same time, he creates a class of Persianate scholars, of ulema known as the Dabir, who are Uh, Don't have to rely on the scholars in Baghdad, the Arab scholars in Baghdad. And so you have this fusion of a sort of Persian intelligentsia with popular religion that helps to convert the people. Now, this is a very important way of understanding why Islam becomes so popular, right? Why is it that this region kind of mass converts? By the time the 11th century rolls around under the Samanids, the entire region has accepted Islam. And that's because Islam wasn't forced from above, it wasn't sort of a military institution. Convert or die contrary to beliefs. Well, there are certain exceptions in which that happened and there's moments of violence. It's actually a cultural process in which we see that Islam was actually integrative. It integrates what was already there. So when we look at a city like Bakh, there's a really great book I would recommend, uh, and it is The Sacred History, The Sacred Geography, I think, of Medieval Afghanistan. I think it's what it's called. It's by Arzal Azad. Fantastic, fantastic book. Sacred Geography of Medieval Afghanistan and it looks at how Muslim scholars would talk about the kind of scholarly tradition in the city of Balkh and it included the Muslim scholarly tradition as well as the Buddhist scholarly tradition. That Muslim scholars would be buried alongside the Buddhist. The idea being that the Buddhist uh, kind of pilgrim sites, the Buddhist sacred sites were viewed as inherently sacred and so Muslims were able to recognize that. So there was this kind of integrative quality to uh, Islam in this region it didn't uh, come in and overthrow everything Go, you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do that no instead it adopt local customs this is also the time period that we see now rose really emerging yet again the 10th century under the Samanids and Balkh we see now which had been practiced in some version by the Sasanians suddenly become not just a new holiday but a Muslim holiday Muslims who are Persian would also practice Nauros, and this eventually spreads all the way up into the kind of Turco-Persian world, as as I call it. But you see Nauros being practiced, right? And that's because Islam absorbs, adopts, integrates, and it becomes accessible and intelligible and understandable to the local population. The key to this process rests in kind of three forms in Sufism, that is, popular kind of religion, in uh, music and cultural practices, and in scholarship. One of the things the Sufi orders did is they established monasteries or hankas, these kind of uh, Sufi centers, if you will, in the kind of mountainous regions around Kabul in particular, and they became halfway houses for travelers. The Naqshbandi, the Chisti, and the Mujadidi orders in particular all established areas there. Now, to be clear, if you don't know what Sufism is, go check out last season where we did a whole subject on Sufism, our whole episode on Sufism. You can also go to the first season where we did one. Sufism isn't a separate branch of Islam, but it's part of a series of kind of mystical differences. Disciplines that focus inward, that move away from kind of uh, sectarian focuses uh, or kind of the outward expressions of religions without rejecting the outward expressions of religion. It should be clear, many Sufi masters were also experts in Sharia law, but rather that r- Argued that the law was about internalizing the experience of Islam. And so, as a result, the kind of Islam of Afghanistan was um, integrative and dynamic. Um, you'll find, for example, that sectarian differences between Sunni and Shia aren't a reality in most of the region of Afghanistan up until the con- kind of contemporary early modern time period that during much of this region we find that mosques that are built are built uh that venerate that have uh, you know adulations to ali which is the fourth caliph in sunni islam and the first imam in shia islam and there isn't seen uh, there's no tension seen there there's no kind of tension between oh Sunni and Shia, that Sunni and Shias often went to the same mosques. In fact, under the Safarids, the very first uh, mosque in Herat was built, known as the Friday Mosque, the Juma Mosque in Herat, the big, beautiful mosque that uh, unfortunately in more contemporary times, kind of present moment, the past few months have seen a series of terrorist attacks. That mosque was built by the Safarids in the 9th century. That It's an old mosque, it's almost a thousand years old plus. And that Mosque was built and and was populated and by Sunnis and Shias both for much of the time period and that type of Islam, this kind of Sufi inclined non sectarian Islam that is seems like Sunni Islam but also integrates parts of Shia Islam and in particular sees Ali as a as a champion of Islam and builds shrines to it is an important part of uh of the Islam that takes root in afghanistan that kind of popularizing the movement of people through those monasteries helps to bring islam into the popular world those merchants and travelers begin to convert to islam originally because of certain kind of monetary connections they convert to islam because they wanted to do trade with muslims and it was easier to do so with your fellow muslims you could avoid taxes you could speak the same language all sorts of things but eventually it becomes kind of a popular expression of faith and we see this, in particular, with music, music because of a really big part of uh, Islam in Afghanistan, along with uh, kind of the cultural expressions of monuments, both of them become very important. One of the kind of most famous musicians that that uh, kind of emerge in this region. Um, is a guy named Amir Khosrow, uh, his, his actual name is a lot longer, but we know most famously as Amir Khosrow, his name is Abul Hasan Yamin Uddin Khosrow, <laughs> this is his name, uh, and he's in the kind of 13th century, so a couple, couple uh, centuries later and he was a mystic and a kind of spiritual student of Nizamuddin um of Delhi he actually comes from Balkh though and eventually he moves to india into delhi and that kind of creates this large trends kind of regional circuit of information it's that's the kind of um, movement of mystics that i was talking about with sufism that there's this movement you have, you have this connection from balkh to delhi all seen as kind of this broader turco Persia, Indian world. All of it is kind of coming together, and so you see Balkh, uh, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, India, all part of this kind of broader Persianate world that is, is converting to Islam. And Amir Khusro is kind of the father of what is known as Qawwali music. It's a devotional form of Sufi music that is most associated with the Indian subcontinent, but actually has its roots in this kind of Persianate Balkh world under these kind of Persian rulers. And uh, Amir Khusra, who, interestingly enough, was a, a gay man himself, was a man who had a male lover, so develops this kind of music style that 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 is praise songs. They're devotional songs. And it involves the use of the tabla, the, a particular type of drum, um, and a certain set of meters that are Persian meters. It's a, it's a Persian meter style, very different from the kind of poetry of Abu Nawaz, which is a much clearer era Arabic, Iraqi brand of poetry. This brand of poetry and music tries to emulate Dargahi and Rudaki, who are classically Persian uh, poets that emerged under the kind of Samanid moment. Um, so this this is a, a kind of fascinating. F- moment in kind of Islamic history in which we see this kind of man, a gay man, right? Which is often sub erased in Islamic history, erased in the history of the Middle East. We often view the Middle East as inherently homophobic, but here's Amir Khosrow, a man who's writing devotional music as a male lover. And we think of music, we go, music in Islam? Hell no, right? But no, here it is. So Khoali music kind of popularizes this, these devotional practices that becomes part of the process uh, of conversion, and it's done um you know this kind con- this connection of mystics from Balkh all the way to delhi now it's not just music though but we see this also in in the kind of uh monument structure under the uh, samanids are eventually overthrown by their own turkish troops who had converted to islam and who adopted the kind of persian culture that the samanids were preaching under mahmud of ghazni in the 11th century in the 11th century he overthrows the samanids and he establishes the ghaznavid empire and the Ghaznavid Empire again is under the kind of as uh, uh, a plenipotentiary of the kind of Abbasids. That is, that it recognizes the Abbasid Caliphate, but is its own kind of independent or autonomous political entity. And Mahmud of Ghazni expands the borders of this Persian world into India. It's what allows mystics like Amir Khosrow after him to go from Balkh to New Delhi. He expands those borders. Mahmud of Ghazni is another man who is, uh, was gay. He was uh, uh, His lover, Malik Aynas, was a Georgian uh, young man who, who was he remained faithful through his own life, but he was one of the fiercest warriors. Uh, you know, kind of a, a warlord of sorts. And eventually he's overthrown by the Ghurids And the Ghorids build these beautiful monuments that become kind of the uniquely Muslim style, the Persian-Muslim style of Afghanistan. We see their architecture in the kind of blue mosque of mazar sharif We see it in the beautiful minaret of Jam. The minaret of Jam is built near Herat, um, and it was a small kind of trading post with this minaret as a symbol of Ghorid victory, and it combines Persian poetry with Quranic phrases, and it also is a site of a jewish cemetery and so you kind of see this kind of diffuse cultural identity that is both islamic and persian while simultaneously being integrative acceptant and tolerant of buddhists of hindus of jews all of which lived under this kind of umbrella this process takes about two to three hundred years from about the ninth century on and eventually through this kind of mixture of of popular music popular sufism cultural transformation vis-a-vis language uh, vis-a-vis translation vis-a-vis monuments you start to see a conversion process the conversion process is helped along by scholars scholars who emerge in the persian world as autonomous from the scholars of baghdad they become the experts of law um, quite famously abu hanifa the, the the founder of the hanifa school his father is actually from afghanistan and so we have this kind of very clear connection for the scholarly and Hanafi tradition through Abu Hanifa's father but also through very famous female scholars like Fatima al-Samarkandi who was a very famous Hanafi scholar who eventually goes on to become the mentor and teacher of uh, Imad al-Din Zangi the, the, uh, the mentor of Salah ad-Din, of of crusader fame, of the crusades fame but Fatima al-Samarkandi kind of female scholarship really becomes important in the Persian world, F- women in particular become what are known as dabirs and translators they end up in the court of bukhara herat baghdad um, and even in kabul kabul is more still more of a kind of trading center than it is an actual religious center but these these females become Sufi mystics, and most importantly, become experts in Sharia. They become the experts in Sharia law, and me- and people turn to them to for judgment. They ask them to settle disputes, and by sheer kind of force of personality, they become the kind of pinpoints or, or, or tents by which Islam in this re- region is is stabilized. Even though there is sort of political upheaval in the region, there's a lot of kind of turmoil. The Abbasid Caliphate is fragmenting. You have these kind of competing dynasties, the Safarids, the Samanids, the Ghaznavids and the Ghurids. Scholarship, men and women scholars, end up emerging as the new religious authority. Not just the caliph who became a figurehead, but these religious scholars became a check on the political power of the ruler, and as a result, popularized Hanafi the Hanafi madhab you can go and learn about the madhabs and Hanafi uh, Islam in my uh, second season of of head on history I talk a lot about the kind of development of the Islamic theology and the Islamic schools of law and jurisprudence but Hanafi Islam starts to take root in this region and so you have a kind of concantation of forces these things coming together popular Sufism the kind of cult of personality that emerges among Sufi saints uh, emerging scholarship that that ends up becoming a stabilizing force for the religion, Um, popular monuments and cultural practices and translation, alongside beautiful mystical music, devotional mystic songs, um, all allow Islam to seep out of the urban centers that are Baal Khirat and Bukhara. Uh, And in that seeping out of Islam from these kind of urban centers out into the rural is a gradual process that takes time. Um, but the conversion is complete by the time about 12th century to the 13th century. Pockets of Buddhism and Hinduism remain, but in general most of the people convert to Islam, a sort of integrative Islam that is Sufi-inclined, uh, Sunni, and combine some elements of Shiaism. That said, this, because of its kind of integrative quality and its the quality of kind of allowing whatever exists to remain, Hinduism Buddhism, um, Zoroastrian, isn't actually persecuted. There isn't forced conversions in Afghanistan. And we see that Hindu temples remain, that even in Kabul, up until the uh, Soviet war, the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, there was a population of Hindus that lived there, a population of Sikhs that lived there. Jewish Afghans lived there. Um, even Buddhist sanctuaries and Buddhist temples remain untouched. The Muslims weren't interested in destroying them. Uh, Mase Aynak, which is a copper mine, has these ancient Bronze Age uh, archaeological sites, but it was also a site of Buddhism. The Buddhas of Bamiyan, as well as various suptas around the country, all remain that Muslim rulers, even under Mahmud of Ghazni, who was the most militaristic, the one that expanded all the way out into North India, that they were interested in expanding their political domination. And while they were interested in converting people under one religion in order to create some sort of unity or solidarity, that that process was left to a natural, organic process that happened over a period of years, that it wasn't enforced. Now, interestingly, the, the actual word Afghan, and Afghanistan isn't used very often. Uh, I think Hudud al-Alam, a book of geography, is the first time that the region is referred to as the people, the Afghan people. And when it, the Khudud al-Alam refers to Afghans, you, it generally means the Pashtun. Originally, it meant the Pashtun people down in the kind of southern regions. Now, the Pashtuns themselves had a, have a weird uh, interpretation of their own history. Uh, some of them argue that it's actually Khalid al-Walid that is the contemporary general under Muhammad the prophet Muhammad that converts them to Islam whereas in the Matullah's uh, uh, afghani the a kind of a history Afghan, of, of Afghans they argue that the etymology of Afghan comes from *Avran*, which is an Israelite tribe an Israelite people so there's this idea that the Pashtuns are actually a lost tribe of Israel that have been Deplaced into southern um, Afghanistan, but the term takes a long time over a series of kind of centuries before it is ex- the definition is expanded under uh, the Durrani Empire to include the, all the diverse peoples within the region. This includes uh, the people that are people who are Hazara, these are people who are Tajik, Pashto, etc. But they are unified under one notion that these are all people who are afghan because of their link cultural background that culture diffuse uh, integrative culture that emerged under the safarids and the samanids and because they're unified under islam and indeed the entire region remains mostly muslim with the exception of a small corner that is referred to as kafiristan by some people now it is incorrectly called kafiristan nuristan is how it's referred to and the nuristani people themselves actually call themselves originally call themselves the balor the Balor uh, is a term that we see all the way into the 16th century uh, Chinese texts refer to them. Because they're kind of isolated off into their own, they don't convert. Mahmud of Ghazni is kind of the first Mahmud of Ghazni that kind of uh, uh, tries to militarily conquer them. He's not very successful. The rest of the kind of leaders, except the Timurids once tried, generally leave Nuristan or so-called Kafiristan to their devices. They practice a sort of proto-old Hinduism. There's uh, references in kind of Chinese texts that they worship a lion. Um, But it isn't until 1896 that there is an attempt to actually convert or Nuristan. Um, Amir Abdul Rahman Khan in particular was very worried about the uh, structural integrity of, of, of Afghanistan. All of Afghanistan had been Muslim for centuries. They had converted during the time from the 9th century to about the 12th century. Over that period of hundreds of years through that cultural renaissance they had converted. But there was this region, Nuristan, that had not. And he was caught in the between the great game of Great Britain and Russia. And he was worried that the Nuristan would somehow become a weak point in Afghanistan, allowing uh, foreigners to invade. Even though the reality is during the Soviet war, there are reports of the Nuristani being the very first people to actually fight against the Russians, to kind of charge into battle and kind of fiercely fight off the Russians. There are reports of it. Amir uh, uh, Abdul Rahman Khan was worried about it. So he originally reached out to the deputies and he kind of converted the deputies and he deputized a bunch of the local rulers and he made them official and they had converted. But, and then finally in 1896, he invaded um, and really established his interpretation of, of Islam, which was a single unified vision. That was the only instance, besides Mahmoud of Ghazni's kind of militaristic campaigns, in which is- the military campaign of Islam uh, the military campaign, merged with the religion. So contrary to the kind of this language of conversion by the sword, the overwhelming history of Islam in Afghanistan is one of a cultural process that involves Sufism, music, cultural memory, shared history, monuments, scholarship. Not People come in and go. You have to convert, and that the only real case of it is in, is the case of Nuristan. And even then, even though he kind of went in there by force, it was a process that took a couple decades, and there was a still a very clear cultural process in trying to convert the elites, who then converted the population, and that is how Islam arrives in Afghanistan. For roughly about a thousand years of the religion there, it's not one that uh, of a foreign religion coming in, but rather it is a religion that then becomes indigenous to Afghanistan they add the people in the region that eventually become uh, all called Afghans at the time they were Sogdians they were Tajiks they were uh, part of various emirates they were the Safarids the Samanids the Ghaznavids the Hurids all of them they localize Islam Islam is not an Arab religion to them, it is part of their religion, their cultural heritage, their shared history. They are the inheritors of both Muhammad and the Sasanians. That Islam is synonymous with Persian, with poetry, with music, with scholarship, and with the Qur'an which had been translated. That's what I'm going to end with today. It's kind of a long history, kind of interesting history, and it is the history of Islam's on the margins. It is Islam that is happening in Afghanistan, not in in Baghdad, not in Arabia. We often don't look at this part of the world and think of Islam or the history of Islam, but it is an integral part of the history of Islam because it helps us understand how Islam actually spread, how Islam actually instituted conversions, how that process really went about, and really the kind of development of the intellectual tradition of islam and the cultural tradition of islam from kawali music to the scholarship of the hanafis all happens in this region that we call afghanistan today all right my friends i'm going to end it here today i'm going to give some book recommendations next time because our next topic is going to have something in common with this So look out for those book recommendations. Let me know what you think of this podcast. If you have any questions, if you have comments, character assassinations, hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. Until next time, stay beautiful, you wonderful history nerds.